0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Winnie, Sam M, Caleb S, Joanna, and Caleb J. First, We'll answer a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, before we wrap up, we'll look at a few fun questions. Let's get started. First, we have serious questions from Winnie and from Sam M. This is Winnie's first time asking a question for the big question. Congratulations, Winnie, on such a good one. Winnie's question is, where... Does God sleep? Well, when we usually think about God and where God is located, we often talk about God being in heaven. Therefore, you would probably expect that when God sleeps, he sleeps somewhere in heaven. But in fact, God doesn't sleep. In Psalm 121, verse 4, it says that he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep that God never sleeps, he never closes his eyes and rests because God doesn't have a body. As Jesus told the woman at the well, God is spirit. In other words, he doesn't have flesh the way that we do. He doesn't get tired the way that we do. He doesn't need to sleep the way that human beings sleep. So the answer to the question, where does God sleep, is nowhere. But before we wrap up, we have to note one little variation here because of course Jesus is the God man. He is fully divine and fully human, and in the Bible we see Jesus asleep and or resting a number of times. In fact, even now because Jesus remains fully divine and fully human, Jesus is said currently to be seated at the right hand of the father so he's physically sitting down so god the father does not sleep but jesus the son does have a physical human body and at least when he was with us on this earth he did sleep and rest and now sam m asks who wrote the doxology Well, the doxology is the little song that we sing at the end of most of our services. Uh, The word doxology just means a short song of praise. It's a term that comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. In fact, when we say in English, glory be to the Father, in Greek, those words would be doxa patri. So the Gloria Patri, which we say after our assurance of pardon, is in fact a doxology. But of course, when people say the doxology, what they usually mean is the one that we sing at the end of the service. That's the song that begins with the words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now, those words were originally written in 1674 by a man named Thomas Ken. That's K-E-N. He wrote them as the ending of a hymn that he'd composed, but then they later were taken out of that context and sung separately, the way we sing them now as a song of praise. Now, when we sing them today, the music that we sing them to is not the original music from the hymn that he wrote. Uh, we sing them to a tune that is called the Old Hundredth. And that's a tune that was written all the way back in 1551 by the composer Louis Bourgeois for the Genevan Psalter, which was the songbook of Calvin's Geneva. So it was originally music written to sing one of the Psalms to. In fact, you can sing several Psalms to it. But usually, when we hear this music, we think of the Doxology. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Caleb S. He asks, why did we sing about a fountain of blood? That sounds disgusting. Well, Caleb, the song that we sing is a hymn that's usually called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. The words of that hymn come from a poem written by the English poet William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. And the poem was called Praise for the Fountain Opened. Now, Cooper was a great Calvinist poet of the 1700s. He wrote a lot of good poetry about God and about things theological, But this is probably his most famous surviving work. He wrote it in 1772, and he wrote inspired by the words of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. Now, because we just did a sermon series on Zechariah, you may actually remember these words right at the beginning of chapter 13, where Zechariah says, "...on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David." and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. When Zechariah mentions the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he's referring to the people of God, the people that God has promised to save, the ones that he's made a covenant with. The question is, what is it that saves or cleanses those people? Well, the answer is the death of Jesus on the cross. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, why does he say specifically through his blood? Well, the blood is a way of talking about Jesus' death as a sacrifice. So when we talk about the blood of Christ being shed, we're specifically talking about the way that Jesus' death was a sacrificial death. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 22, we read that the Old Testament sacrifices are all uh, ways to cleanse the people of their sin through the sacrificing of an animal, through the shedding of its blood. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But of course, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament are looking forward to the sacrifice made at the cross, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. Now, when a sacrifice was performed, the blood of the sacrifice would be spread on the altar as a kind of covering, symbolically referencing the covering of the sins of the people so that punishment or wrath would pass over them. The most famous example of a blood covering that led to protection for someone was in the story of the Passover in the book of Exodus, where blood from the sacrifice was spread on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the firstborn of that household. Now, if you haven't heard that story before, you should ask your parents to show you in the Bible where you can find it. Now, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, as I said, were pointing forward to the sacrifice that Jesus would make once and for all at the cross. So, symbolically, spiritually, the cross opens up that fountain of blood that Zechariah is referring to and that the song is referring to as well. And that fountain cleanses all of Christ's people from their sin that's what we mean when we say that we are saved by the blood of christ and that's why we sing about a fountain filled with blood that flows from emmanuel's veins that flows from christ's veins because in his death he atones or covers the sins of his people so caleb that's the reason why we sing about a fountain of blood It's not disgusting. It's actually quite wonderful because through that terrible act of Jesus's death, he purchased the redemption of all those who believe in him. And now it's time for a couple of fun questions. Our first fun question comes from Joanna. She wants to know, what do the pictures on the front of the bulletin mean? Well, since we began our sermon series on Matthew's Gospel, the artwork on the front cover of the Order of Worship represents four symbols of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of the four is is winged. Matthew is represented by an angel. Mark is represented by a lion. Luke is represented by an ox, and John is represented by an eagle. Now, these four symbols are taken from the four living creatures mentioned in Ezekiel 1 and in Revelation chapter 4. And here's an interesting little aside. On my ring that I wear, my signet ring that I wear, there is a winged lion holding a Bible. And he's referred to as the Lion of St. Mark. He represents Mark's gospel. And, of course, Mark is the evangelist that I was named after. And now Caleb J. asks, who is going to win the Super Bowl? Give me a real answer this time. Well, Caleb, if I remember correctly, last year I told you that the team that scored the most points would win the Super Bowl. Now, I sensed the skepticism in your question, so I went ahead and did some research, and it turns out that at least for the past five years or so, this has definitely been true. The team that scores highest always wins. Now, I didn't go back farther than five years, so maybe there are some exceptions, but as far as I can tell, my answer was real, and the team that scores the most points will pretty much always be the winner, so I'd expect that to be true The next time we have a Super Bowl, which will be early next year, Super Bowl 56. If you're asking me what the name of the team that will win Super Bowl 56 is, well, that's in the future. It hasn't happened yet. I don't claim to know everything that will happen in the future. I just know everything that has happened in the past. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.